This week, Muslims around the world celebrated Eid al-Adha. It's the second Eid in the Muslim calendar and a slightly more somber affair to the one that takes place after the fast, which is a celebration of eating and drinking after a month of abstinence. This Eid is about sacrifice, specifically the sacrifice Abraham was asked to make when he was instructed to slaughter his son as part of a demonstration of faith. The son was replaced by a sheep, and the rest, as they say, is history. Muslims around the world sacrifice sheep, goat, cows, and in some places even camel, and the meat is often donated to the poor. I grew up in a Muslim household, and we'd often go to farm areas or places where this type of slaughter was taking place on this Eid. We would buy a couple of animals, we would share the meat amongst family and friends, but as I grew older I lost quite a lot of these traditions. My family, of course, have still maintained them. This year I was able to celebrate Eid in some way by going on a tour of the Bukhap organized by Culture Connect SA, which, amongst taking us to the slaughtering sites, also introduced us to Islam in the Cape. It's a different form of Islam that's practiced here amongst the Cape Malay community, a more jubilant form of Islam with a lot more celebration, music is involved, there's dance, there's color, especially amongst those colorful houses in the Bukhap, a lot of differences in terms of the food they eat and the way they enjoy their day. We started with a talk by Mohammed Khunavalt, an academic and an activist who explained the history of Islam in the Cape and why it's so different to the Islam that has formed in other parts of the world. Maybe just quickly start how Islam came to the Cape. Remember the Dutch um, colonized lots of parts of the world in terms of the Malay Archipelago, India. Talk about the Malay Archipelago. It is, you know, in today, modern-day Indonesia, all those little islands, etc. And one of the reasons for that is because of people's natural resources. And, you know, at the time, the Cape was always acted almost as a garage, you know, we fill up and, and leave again, right? And until the Dutch decided, look, let's stay here, let's build something here, let's claim this piece of, of, of land. Um, and with that, you know, came, as they were colonizing, enslaving people, etc., the people started, of course, organizing themselves, develop a resistance against this kind of uh, colonial attitude and so on. So of course, in any form of colonialism, there's three things that they do. If you look at apartheid South Africa, they either kill you if you resist the leadership, or they exile you, or they put you in prison. Those are basically the type of three things that they do. And then there was a very well-known Sufi sheikh, Sheikh Yusuf, came from Makkah where he studied, and he had to go to Makassar where he stayed. But because of the revolt in Makassar, the ship couldn't go, you know, and then he got off in Goa, also under Dutch colonialism. And then not long after that, the king of Goa, he married his daughter, and then not long after that, they started the resistance against Dutch rule, you know, in colonialism, etc., were not very successful. And what the Dutch did was trying to, of course, kill them and capture them, imprison them and so on. 
but a number of failed attempts to capture Sheikh Yusuf. Eventually, they capture Sheikh Yusuf, and then they exile Sheikh Yusuf, to, I mean, they imprison Sheikh Yusuf in Ceylon. Now, because Sheikh Yusuf was a very well-known scholar, people didn't sit back and, I mean, if they have to imprison Tutu, because he spoke against the government. South Africans are not going to, even if they say, well, let's put him in Zimbabwe, you know, close by in a prison there. I mean, Zimbabweans is not going to stand still and say, okay, fine. People, of course, is going to protest. So what the Dutch decided, hey, this is giving us too much headache. We have a place very far where no one will disturb us. Let's exile him to that place. And that was Cape Town. The exile Sheikh Yusuf, of course, he didn't imprison him. Simeon van der Stel's wife were also from Indonesia. And because Sheikh Yusuf was also royalty, he came with his three wives, with a lot of servants, and they put him at a spot very far away from the city. And they, of course, mentioned, called that place also later Makassar, because he comes from Makassar. And Makassar is close to Stellenbosch area. Now, of course, the Dutch knew the power of these people. If they had to put Sheikh Yusuf in mainland, and his influence over people was very great, most of the slaves would have been accepted Islam. But where they've placed Sheikh Yusuf, one of the things was that the slaves around him, the farms, they, most of them embraced Islam. Right? And then, of course, there came others as well. A scholar by the name of Qadi Abdus Salam arrived at the Cape. Also, similar history like Sheikh Yusuf and so on. Now, Qadi Abdus Salam was known locally as Tuanguru. So, Tuanguru, you know, also a prince born in 1712 and engaged in a struggle against the Dutch, captured, banished to the Cape in 1780, straight to Robben Island. Spent 13 years on Robben Island. Whilst on Robben Island, of course, what, what else do you have to do there? You know? So he started writing a Quran from memory. He started writing a number of books. One of the famous, Ma'rifatul Islam al Iman, the essence of Islam and, and, and Iman belief. So he writes this book and became sort of the text, religious text in the Cape. After 13 years, he came out of prison in 1793, and he was mainly in charge of institutionalizing Islam in the Cape. When Tuan Guru came out, he requested for a congregational prayer at the Cape. You know, The authorities, of course, refused because the only religion allowed was Dutch Reformed Church. There was a very strong element of anti-Islam. Islam mustn't grow here, you know. And later on, in defiance of that, Tuanguru still led a group of Muslims in the stone quarry. What was important for Tuanguru was to establish a madrasa, a center of learning for Muslims. So in Dorp Street, a woman by the name of Kaija van Deska, she then gave that property to Sheikh Yusuf, to Tuanguru, and there they established the first madrasa, which later, a year later, 1794, became the first mosque in southern Africa, donated by a woman. Now, the first Muslim institution donated by a woman, and yet if you look at many of our religious institutions, the sad part is Muslims, Christians, Jews, we still treat women as second-class citizens in our religious spaces. And here a woman, Sarki van Deska, donated the very first mosque 
as a space of, of, of prayer and learning, which is the center of any community, center of the Muslim community. Right? So, Islam grew fairly rapidly among the slave community. Right? But, you know, there's reasons for that. And that is because Islam in the Cape offered a very colorful and a communal spirit to, to those that were lost. So what's unique, again, to the Cape is that all over the world, Islam went either via trade, certain parts in India it was forced to people, we must hide that fact, um, but mostly via trade and via all sorts of means that people went from Saudi or Yemen, etc., in the early parts. But Islam at the Cape came not via that, came via the very colonial masters. <laughs> so, you know, Islam started by them bringing people here, you know. And therefore, what makes the Muslim community unique again is that this community that had no contact with mainland, like Indians that came 200 years later to work as indentured laborers, laborers, they were still very much in touch with India and could go. Our community had to start from scratch. So there was no contact with Indonesia. The only time that we had contact with Indonesia was 1994, when we had the 300 years of celebration of Islam. It was just when Mandela was released. So that is why, you know, the idea of, you know, the uniqueness of this community, a unique Islam emerged with no interference of a homeland and a one foot here and one foot there, you know, in a legion somewhere else, like we have in Europe in the United States. It was a purely, pure, developed religion with its culture, with everything else that is unique, including its food. Then it was time for lunch. We were invited into a Cape Malay home and cooked a homemade meal, starters, mains, desserts, everything we could have wanted. This is what we had had to enjoy. The samosas that you are having today is chicken, corn, spinach and feta. If I may add, you won't find it anywhere else but at number 109 Well Street by Moa. Of course, that is my <laughs> The food that's in front of you is chicken curry. And I use the fillet because the fillet is more easier to work and to eat. You can use the chicken on the bone. And which makes a very, very nice pot of curry. And then for the vegetarians, there's some red lentil and some white rice um, cooked with mustard seeds and cardamom and stick cinnamon. And the salad that you guys have been eating, that is what we call a sambal salad, salsa in other words, which is made, the normal ingredients are your tomato onions and your fresh coriander. Optional, you can add your, which I add, carrots um, and cucumber. If you don't want to add that too, you can add your mango, peach, apricot, pineapple, whatever you feel you want to put in. And also the sauce, your vinegar, water, salt and pepper, and I also add in some apricot jam. Turn it out. And add it to it, it balances it out because your vinegar and your um, tomato has got acid in. So the apricot jam and the sugar balance it down and give it a sweet sour taste. Before we eat, we normally say a small prayer, which is Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We eat in the name of the Almighty and with the blessings of the Almighty. 
So for the blessings of me and my family, Bismillah, you must start eating. And then it was time for dessert. Unlike in my family where we would enjoy biscuits and tea, this is a biscuit of a somewhat different nature. Much bigger, much sweeter, and dare I say, a little more enjoyable. This is um, it's a traditional Sunday breakfast. We eat that on a Sunday morning. You will find here in Pulkup, that lady around the corner, the lady in Leven Street, the lady down the road, the shop down the road. Everybody sells Christmas on a Sunday morning. Because we have Christmas for breakfast and then we have a big lunch and then we have sandwiches for the evening or we have the leftover food for supper. So this was how I celebrated my Heritage Day. For the first time in a long time, a real exploration of my own heritage and a reminder of what makes South Africa so different and so special. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next week.